Grace to you, brothers. It's a delight to be a part of this colloquy. It's also a a delight to be part of this school, to have the privilege of shepherding students like you to handle God's word faithfully. I do not count it a light task. I pray that God would keep me faithful and in turn make you more faithful. Let's pray. Father, today we talk about your word and how you have brought it to us. Not simply books, but a book. Not simply canon as rule, but canon as list. Grant us clarity as we wrestle with historical and biblical evidence. I desire to be faithful. Your word is at stake. Truth is at stake. And it is the very means of grace, not only for justifying, but for sanctifying men and women to become more like you. As we wrestle with deep things in deep ways, we want you to be honored. Right now, I seek the obedience of faith for the sake of your name among all the nations. Come, Holy Spirit, manifest yourself in power. Lead us to truth. I do not speak thinking that I have it all down. I offer a contribution from this mere clay pot that you've chosen to use for honorable use. All of us need your help. So overcome all pride, nurture humility, and bring greater clarity than we had when we entered into this room. Lead all of us toward greater truth, I pray, for the glory of Christ and for his church. Amen. The paper that I am reading today is going to be published in July in a volume called The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, Studies in Evangelical Old Testament Hermeneutics. It'll be published in, with B&H. I failed to recall that some of you have already read this paper because I assigned it in Biblical Theology last fall. That stated, I hope a second round for some will benefit. The hermeneutical significance of the shape of the Christian canon. Not all modern Bibles are arranged in the same way. Most contemporary Christian Bibles in English structure the Old Testament books into law, history, poetry, wisdom, and prophecy. And the New Testament books into the Gospels, Acts, Paul's epistles, and Hebrews, the Catholic epistles, and Revelation. Historically, this order might go back to Jerome's arrangement in his Latin Vulgate, late 4th century AD, which likely followed the structure of some known codices, that is, bound books, of the Greek Old Testament. 
Nevertheless, the modern critical edition of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is based on the text but not precise order of the oldest complete manuscript of the Hebrew Bible, the Leningrad Codex, dated to A.D. 1008, consists of 24 books divided into three sections, the Law, the Prophets, the Writings, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The parallel critical edition of the Greek New Testament follows the same structure as contemporary English versions, though a recent reader's edition mirrors an ancient and early tradition that placed the Catholic epistles directly after Acts and before Paul's epistles in Hebrews. Brevard Childs correctly notes, it's historically inaccurate to assume that the present printed forms of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible represent ancient and completely fixed traditions. Actually, the present stability regarding the ordering of the books is to a great extent dependent on modern printing techniques and carries no significant theological weight, end quote. Religious communities have been responsible for the present order of the biblical books, but we must ask whether historical and theological priority should be given to any one canonical structure over another, most specifically when doing the discipline of biblical theology. Elsewhere, I define biblical theology as a way of analyzing and synthesizing what the Bible reveals about God and his relations with the world that makes organic salvation historical and literary canonical connections with the whole of Scripture on its own terms, especially with respect to how the Old and New Testaments progress, integrate, and climax in Christ. So, is the order of the canon significant when considering how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Jesus? That is the question for our day. A number of factors move me to answer with a qualified yes. And my response will come in three stages. First, the study re- will overview the nature and limits of the biblical canon. Second, it assesses how much ancient canon consciousness included not simply which books, but also their ordering. Third, it considers ways that canonical arrangement could and indeed should inform a Christian's interpretive conclusions in relation to biblical theology. So we begin. The Nature and Limits of the Biblical Canon The Christian canon is the church's authoritative collection of holy books. God authored the whole through human agents, and it is made up of what we now call the Old and New Testaments. The Protestant Old Testament canon is made up of 39 books, and the Jewish Bible is identical with it in content, but consists of 24 books that are divided and arranged differently. The New Testament has 27 books with some known variation in ordering. Now, the word canon derives from the Hebrew term kaneh, or reed, which came to signify a measuring stick. The term entered into Greek as kanon and was applied more broadly to represent various exemplary standards of measurement, whether legal, literary, or human. Both historically and theologically, the concepts of canon and covenant correlate. The essence of canon is bound up in the authoritative written word of a covenant lord. Recipients recognized rather than decided the canonical status of the scriptural texts in light of their source. 
We identify and affirm the Bible as canon, that is, as an authoritative rule, because it is by nature the very word of the living God. The application of the term canon to Scripture does not occur into the 4th century AD, but the concept was set at least as early as the days of Moses and carried on through the shaping of the Scriptures and through the period following the New Testament. As the canon grew, the concept became associated not only with an authoritative and normative body of literature, that is, canon as rule, but but also with specific boundaries and shaping of that literature, canon as list. Evidence of early canon consciousness. The ancients bore a rich canon consciousness with respect to the scripture, as is evident from the Bible, from the biblical witness to its own authority, the identification in and outside the Bible of a sacred canonical body of material, and the presence of ancient biblical canon lists. Significantly, while the latter witness some variation, there is strong evidence that at least at some levels, groupings and arrangement mattered. This fact suggests that a proper view of canon affirms that God not only gave us books, but progressively shaped a book, Scripture as a whole, with Old and New Testaments, and that the order and arrangement of the parts influence its meaning. First, From its earliest stages, the Bible attests to its own authority and to its being recognized as bearing canonical status. Yahweh's written word through Moses demanded allegiance, and God's binding and unalterable law was to guide both Israel's king and its community in the promised land. Following Moses' death, a collection of sacred covenantal texts, very akin to what we know of as Genesis through Deuteronomy, or the law, was associated with Moses' authority and substantial authorship. And each literary seam between the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Hebrew, each literary seam between these various divisions of the Hebrew Bible gives this collection foundational canonical status. All of them point back to Moses. As such, part of analyzing and synthesizing the Bible on its own terms requires that we follow the lead of the Old Testament itself and interpret everything outside of the Mosaic collection in light of that collection. I'll say more about this shortly. In the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles had a Bible that had expanded far beyond Moses' five books, and they viewed the whole as the authoritative word of God. Jesus believed that what Moses wrote in the law, God himself said, and that David spoke by the Holy Spirit. Jesus also put the authority of the scriptures above Satan and his own human preferences preferences, and above the distortions of the Jewish leaders of his day. He believed that all scripture would be fulfilled, and that knowing the scriptures could help a person avoid both doctrinal error and hell. People today are to believe Moses' writings, and even the small affirmations cannot be broken, says Jesus. Furthermore, Paul treated Jesus' words in the Gospels in his own words as canonically authoritative, and Peter viewed Paul's words as bearing the same scriptural status as other sacred texts. Second, as we move into the intertestamental and New Testament periods, the concept of canon is evident in the way the Jews spoke of their sacred collection of texts, the whole of which they believed had expanded far beyond Moses' foundational writings. 
what we now tag the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, they spoke of in various ways. At times, they used one-part titles such as the law, the holy scriptures or writings, or just the scriptures. Other times, they employed a two-part designation like the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, or the law of Moses and the prophets. And still other times, likely citing the identical canonical body of material, they adopted a three-part heading like the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, or the law of Moses, sorry, the law, the prophets, and the rest of the books, or the books of Moses, the books of the prophets, and David. Some of these designations occurred centuries before the New Testament, and their very presence identifies a high canon consciousness that was tied in some way to structure. Third, we have a series of early lists of Old and New Testament books that together highlight that certain writings were sacred and that they were viewed in certain groupings and orders. Assessing the scant yet complex data is difficult, but a number of features are evident. With respect to the Old Testament, two of the earliest lists of the Hebrew scriptures are Jewish. While they portray different arrangements, they are both tripartite and together support the conviction that prophecy had temporarily ceased after Malachi and that long before the New Testament age, perhaps reaching as far back as the days of Ezra, what we call the Old Testament was already a fixed canonical standard likely held and controlled at the temple. Of the Old Testament canon, Gallagher and Mead also note that the earliest Christian lists, and I quote, the earliest Christian lists from the first four centuries attest to a very stable collection that consistently mirrored the Jewish canon, end quote, though there are varied orderings. The first Jewish list comes from the historian Josephus in his Against Apian, dated to A.D. 94 to 117. Josephus did not register the books themselves, but he speaks of a closed list of 22 inspired books that had guided the Jews for centuries and that bore a three-part structure, though a different structure than we normally think of in our Hebrew Bible. In alignment with his role as historian, he grouped the biblical books by genre and chronology and apparently used the 22-letter Hebrew alphabet to fix his number the five books of Moses from the beginning to his death, the 13 prophets who recorded history from the death of Moses to the reign of Artaxerxes, likely joining Judges and Ruth and Jeremiah and Lamentations to make 22, and then four remaining books that included various hymns and instructions. Gallagher and Mead note, and I quote, Many Jews, all according to Josephus, received these books as authoritative by the late first century, and it's likely that such reception constituted a radical and it's unlikely that such a reception constituted a radical change from the previous situation, especially in the absence of ancient statements disputing the status of these books. End quote. That Josephus did not actually list the books, however might suggest that his record was not an official ordering. The second Jewish list is the ancient rabbinic Baraita, Baba Batra 14b, an Eastern tradition that is in the Jewish oral law, but not incorporated into the Mishnah. Baba Batra 14b comes from the rabbinic scholars known as the Tanayim, 
who lived during the initial two centuries AD and whose work was later included in the Babylonian Talmud. It lists 24 biblical books and also differentiates a three-part structure, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Here, however, chronology, theology, and literary artistry guide the arrangement. Most notably, with Ruth and Chronicles being part of the third division and the historical narrative books, law, former prophets, latter writings, framing what could be termed non-narrative commentary books. The latter prophets and the former writings. Now these commentary books bore the purpose of not detailing the progress of redemptive history, but rather explaining, interpreting, and guiding our reading of it. So we have both historical narrative and commentary books with the historical narrative framing the commentary. The major prophets are out of chronological order in Baba Batra. It's not Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Ruth is totally separated from its temporal context after Judges, Daniel's not among the prophets, and Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah are placed in reverse chronological order. This stated, the narrative runs chronologically from Genesis to Kings, it pauses from Jeremiah to Lamentations, and then it resumes from Daniel to Ezra and Nehemiah, all in chronological order. Chronicles then recalls the story from Adam and moves that story all the way to Cyrus's decree that Israel can return. Now, how about the commentary books? The commentary, the, as for the commentary, the latter prophets structure the four books largest to smallest. And the former writings follow the same pattern except Ruth prefaces the Psalter and the longer Lamentations follows Song of Songs. Why would Ruth preface the Psalter? This places the Psalter in the context of Davidic hope. As for reversing Lamentations and Song of Songs, Jeremiah's writings are then seen to frame the entire commentary. Jeremiah at the beginning, Lamentations at the end. Not only that, all of Solomon's three books are grouped together. So you have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. But most importantly, Lamentations is then used to reorient the reader back to the exilic context where kings left off and where the narrative in Daniel then picks up. Now, outside these two lists, this is significant. Outside these two Hebrew Jewish lists, we do not find any alternative Jewish arrangements of the Hebrew scriptures until much later, in the middle of the medieval period from the Western Masoretic tradition. Think Aleppo Codex in AD 925 and the Leningrad Codex in AD 1008. And then after those, the next list appears in the medieval period in the 16th century Second Rabbinic Bible. Furthermore, of the two early Jewish lists, it's significant that Baba Batra 14b more closely aligns with the New Testament's internal testimony regarding the structure of Jesus' Bible, and therefore most likely represents the standard listing found at the temple in Jesus' day. Specifically, the Jewish Bible that Jesus and the apostles used bore a three-part structure that included Psalms as the largest and first main book in the third division, with Ruth apparently serving as the preface. Jesus' statement following his resurrection gives biblical support for this structure, for he appears to use Psalms as the title of the whole third division, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, Jesus says, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, Luke 24, 44. Also, the biblical data suggests that the Bible of the earliest church began with Genesis and ended with Chronicles, just like Bababatra 14b. Once, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he spoke of the martyrdom of the Old Testament prophets, from the blood of Abel all the way to the blood of Zechariah, Luke eleven fifty one. Now, this is not a simple A to Z statement, for Zechariah's name does not begin with the last letter of any biblical language alphabet. Also, it's not strictly a chronological statement, for while Abel was the first martyr, The Old Testament's last martyr with respect to time was Uriah the son of Shemaiah who died during the reign of Jehoiakim, Jeremiah 26. Jesus seems to have been speaking canonically by mentioning the first and the last martyr in the literary structure of his Bible. Just as Genesis records Abel's murder, the end of Chronicles highlights a certain Zechariah who was killed in the temple court during the reign of Josiah, 2 Chronicles 24. Now, with respect to the New Testament, sorry, the words are so small. With respect to the New Testament, many of the earliest Christian lists, whether in Greek or Latin, include both, both Testaments or just the New Testament. However, the earliest complete 27-book record comes in A.D. 367 in Athanasius' 39th Festal Letter, in which he identified the canonical New Testament books so as to distinguish those that did not bear such authority. He register, his registry looks very similar to our present English Bible lists, except that he places the seven Catholic epistles, James through Jude, directly after Acts following a common Greek manuscript tradition. He also includes Hebrews with Paul's letters, also quite common in the East, and places Hebrews before the pastorals. As early as the second century, however, way before Athanasius' lists, the church widely accepted the collections of the four Gospels, the seven Catholic epistles, and Paul's letters, with 13 in the West and 14 in the East, plus or minus Hebrews, along with Acts and Revelation. While it's difficult to assess due to the paucity of evidence for the Catholic epistles prior to the 4th century AD, Trobisch proposes that the New Testament canon was likely fixed as early as AD 125 and originally bore the structure that matches Athanasius' list. Now, it's noteworthy that Trobisch's proposal, Trobisch's proposed earliest ordering of the New Testament books, aligning with Athanasius' arrangement, follows the same genetic structure of Jesus' Hebrew Bible. That is, both the Old and the New Testament follow this structure. Narrative, narrative, commentary, commentary, narrative. A number of scholars propose that the structure of the New Testament canon may have actually been influenced by the earliest Christian Greek Old Testament lists, which regularly place the historical narrative books up front and end with the prophetic books, much like our own Bibles. And so it is that they say when Revelation comes at the end, it parallels canon lists that have prophecy at the end. However, 
When Revelation, while not strictly historical narrative, is actually viewed as prophetic narrative, completing Scripture's storyline begun all the way back in Genesis, moving through Chronicles into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, when Revelation is seen as carrying on the story where the Gospels and Acts left off, then the generic structural parallels become apparent between Baba Batra 14b, the likely structure of Jesus' Bible, and the New Testament of the early church. Gospels, Acts, Revelation provide a progressive historical narrative And the commentary books, that is the epistles, are generally arranged from longest to shortest, just like the commentary books in Baba Batra 14b. Paul's letters start with the longest and move all the way to the shortest, the letters to the churches, and then it's longest to shortest with respect to the letters going directly to individuals. The same is true in the Catholic epistles. So we move now to the significance of canonical arrangement for biblical theology. First section, a call for the reader to read Jesus' Bible like Jesus did. The data above clearly identify that before the invention of the Codex, the modern book, canonical groupings of scrolls were at times associated with certain arrangements. Not only do we have single, double, and tripartite designations for the Hebrew Scriptures, but we also find Baba Batra 14b, dated somewhere in the first two centuries, showing significant concern for, those, for the arrangement. Similarly, the Christian lists from Melito of Sardis, AD 170, and Athanasius of Alexandria, AD 367, show similar interest in book placement within the whole of the Christian scriptures. Canonical consciousness related to God's word included the ordering of the whole and not just the presence of individual books. Archaeological evidence suggests that before the Codex, Ancient archives and libraries often stored canonical scrolls in specific groupings and arrangements, thus highlighting that canonical consciousness could include collections of books placed in specific orders. That ancient biblical canon designations and lists highlighted highlight both the Jewish Bible's tripartite grouping and specific sequences suggests a similar process could have been at work in Israel at the temple. Gallagher and Mead proposed that before the 3rd or 4th century AD, when the Bible moved from being a collection of scrolls to a codex, we should think of arrangement on a more conceptual rather than physical level. Similarly, Salehamer notes that, and I quote, any talk of a specific shape of the Old Testament canon at the time of Jesus prior to the codex would necessitate approaching it in, not in terms of its physical reality, but as a mental construct. End quote. Even if this is so, the mental construct included macrostructure and arrangement, and this is still significant. As Spellman observes, as the Hebrew Bible formed, the groupings of law, prophets, and writings became an overarching framework by which to order the biblical material. Thus, when readers picked up a portion of a biblical scroll, they had to locate that locate the portion that they were holding conceptually in relation to other writings held. The same practice would have been applied in the writings and reading of the New Testament documents, end quote. 
Much like the book of Psalms, which was inspired over a thousand-year period, culminating in God's leading editors to shape its final form into five books, it's possible that we should think about the Christian Bible in the same way. God leading not only individual authors to give us books, but also guiding editors to give us a book, shaped progressively in two parts, Old and New Testaments. We had observed that the internal witness of the New Testament is that the is that Jesus' Hebrew Bible had three divisions, law, prophets, and writings, that began with Genesis and ended with Chronicles, and that had Psalms as the first main book of the third section. Thus, Hamilton notes, and I quote, the authors of the New Testament themselves both assume the Hebrew order of the books of the Old Testament and take for granted that their audience will also know that order, end quote. He then rightly queries, queries, If Jesus is on record with a statement about how he views the organization of the books of the Old Testament, why would his followers organize the Old Testament in any other way? End quote. In a quest to read the Old Testament scriptures like Jesus and the Apostles, it seems most natural that we would want to read the whole in the arrangement that shaped their thinking. It's possible that only when we account for features of arrangement that we will actually fully grasp the unified message that Jesus, Paul, and Peter interpreted regarding the tribulation and the triumph of the Messiah and the mission that he would spark. As for the New Testament, we also know that the most likely historical reconstruction of Jesus' Bible, Baba Batra 14b, discloses a generic structure paralleling that of the New Testament. So, Law is narrative. Gospels are narrative. Former prophets are narrative. Acts is narrative. Latter prophets are commentary. Catholic epistles, commentary. Former writings are commentary. Paul's epistles and Hebrews are commentary. Latter writings, narrative. Revelation prophetic narrative. Someone put the New Testament in the arrangement that we have and structured it to parallel the law, prophets, writings, arrangement that Jesus testifies to in the New Testament. Narrative, narrative, commentary, commentary, narrative. We thus see that the Old and New Testaments as a whole show signs of intentional shaping toward a common goal, a quality potentially testifying to the hand of a supreme author. Spellman points to some of the significance of these findings when he writes, If the broad framework of the canon is in some way intentional, then the scope and direction of intertextual possibilities can be understood in a similar, similarly intended manner. In other words, the canon both guides and governs a biblical interpreter's detection and interpretation of intertextual references and their fertile potential for rich biblical meaning. Moreover, the concept of canon eliminates certain views of the nature of intertextuality and also limits the exponentially large number of possible intertextual connections that might be brought to bear on biblical texts. End quote. Four ways canonical arrangement matters for biblical theology. In light of the way earlier canon consciousness included both the authority and order of the sacred collection of books, 
There are at least four ways in which arrangement matters when engaging the discipline of biblical theology. Number one, biblical theology requires prioritizing the law and the gospels. Arrangement matters in this first way. A biblical theological method requires that we prioritize the law of Moses in the Old Testament and the Gospels in the New. For each grouping of books details how God established the foundational covenant, Old and New, that shapes how we understand each testament. In the Old Testament, all books written after Moses assume both the presence of his words in Genesis through Deuteronomy and the covenantal context they describe. What Moses writes guides how later narrators detail Israel's history from the conquest to Jerusalem's demise and through the exile to initial restoration. The narrative highlights that the nation's ruin was an act of divine covenantal curse and fully due to Israel and Judah's failure to heed the words of Moses proclaimed through the prophets. Furthermore, The story identifies that the faithful kings retained a high level of canon consciousness. Think David or Josiah. Whereas the unfaithful did not. Think Jehoiakim slicing uh, Jeremiah's scroll with his knife. Accordingly, the prophets made their indictments, instructions, and predictions of punishment or restoration blessing all in light of Moses' law. And the sages built their prayers and wisdom upon it. Moses' five books give shape to the problems that Christ solves. They formalize or anticipate all of Scripture's covenants. Most biblical theological themes and most typological shadows originate in the law. And every canonical scene between the law, the prophets, and the writings in Jesus' Bible included reference to the authority of Moses' writings. These realities identify that a faithful biblical theology requires treating the five books of Moses up front in Scripture so that they supply a framework through which we must read everything else. This is likely why every known canon list and order begins with the law. Furthermore, as recorded in the four Gospels, Jesus' teaching and work shape and clarify all further instruction and supply the lens for faithfully reading Scripture as a whole. Acts and Revelation develop the history and future of the church by identifying how the reign of God that Christ inaugurated is indeed expanded by means of His Spirit and will culminate in the final judgment and glorious consummate state. The book of Hebrews opens by asserting its foundation. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Similarly, as Moon notes, the author of James seems to have been so soaked in the atmosphere and specifics of Jesus' teaching that he can reflect them almost unconsciously. End quote. Paul, too, knew well the teachings of Christ, and he stresses numerous times how his own encounter with the resurrected Jesus reshaped his outlook on all reality. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. While the New Testament does not explicitly draw on the Gospels at the same rate of the old te- that the Old Testament draws on the Law of Moses, partly due to the fact that many of the Gospels were written after those letters, 
Nevertheless, there would be no New Testament were it not for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the spirit empowerment his ascension secured. Therefore, taking scripture on its own terms requires that we use the portrait of Christ in the Gospels as the lens for interpreting all the rest of the New Testament and as the lens for interpreting the Old. All early New Testament canon lists place the Gospels up front. Number two, why arrangement matters with respect to biblical theology. Biblical theology requires interpreting the biblical story in succession. Proper biblical theological method requires interpreting the story in the order in which it happened. Historical narrative books frame both Jesus' Bible and the New Testament. The people God used to providentially arrange these books intentionally placed them in chronological succession to clarify God's perspective on how the peoples and events of space and time relate to his kingdom purposes. The story moves from creation to new creation, from the old cursed world in Adam to the new blessed world in Christ. The progress of five covenants, the Adamic Noahic, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and new drives this grand story. All of these covenants progress, integrate, and climax in Christ. Building organic connections within the canon itself requires that we read this redemptive story in succession, with Christ standing as the ultimate end and goal of its history, its law, its promises. All scripture points to Christ, and by fulfilling all previous anticipations, he provides the lens for interpreting the whole. Yet we will only properly see and understand his central role if we read the story in proper order. Significantly, the Christian Bible includes more than historical narrative. The narrative portions themselves contain various subgenres like commands and oracles, blessings and curses, songs, riddles, parables, apocalyptic visions. But the scripture also includes the latter prophets, the former writings, the Catholic epistles, and the Pauline epistles in Hebrews, four large groupings of poetic, prophetic, and hortatory books that together provide commentary on the storyline by informing and guiding our understanding of the broader plotline. As such, we will grasp Scripture's overarching message most clearly when we read the narrative and commentary books in a complementary way. It is through such a structure that Jesus and the apostles preached the good news of God's kingdom from the initial three-fourths of the Bible. And it is in this manner that we are empowered to do the same with the whole of the Christian scripture. Number three, biblical theology requires accounting for scripture's progress from Old Testament to New Testament centered on Christ. When we engage in biblical theology, we must account for how the Old Testament progresses to the New Testament in light of the person and work of Jesus. Scripture teaches that there are only two major redemptive historical epochs, before Christ and after Christ. The law and the prophets were until John, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, Luke 16, 16. The law was our guardian until Christ came, Paul says, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. Galatians 3, 24 and 25. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of a a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, Galatians 4.4. The New Testament stresses that Christ's death and resurrection radically altered the flow of history, allowing the future to enter into the present and shifting the primary authority from Moses to Jesus and the primary people from Israel to the church. In Christ, we also gained clarity on how God could justify the ungodly and justly overcome the condemnation that Adam's sin instigated on humanity. The biblical theological task requires that we read the Old Testament as the foundation of how Christ in the New Testament fulfills God's promises. And it also requires that we see in Christ the mystery revealed that unlocks the full meaning of the Old Testament. What Jesus and the apostles teach in the New Testament is the basis for what the church must teach. Jesus' death and resurrection supplies the necessary lens for rightly appropriating the Old Testament as God intended. Number three, sorry, number four. Biblical theology requires recognizing that canonical arrangement influences reading. Doing biblical theology demands that we assess intertextual connections that are always informed by a book's placement, regardless of one's canonical arrangement. As Spellman notes, and I quote, Reading an individual writing as part of a larger collection affects the nature and direction of the, connect, of the connotations and assumptions that are made by the reader. It affects the reading process, end quote. Similarly, Goswell observes, and I quote, where a biblical book is placed relative to other books inevitably influences a reader's view of the book on the supposition that juxtaposed books are related in some way and therefore illuminate each other. A prescribed order of the books is de facto interpretation of the text, end quote. For example, following the arrangement of our English Bibles, many Bible reading plans place 1st and 2nd Chronicles directly after 1st and 2nd Kings, which can cause one to feel like the same story is being told just in different words. However, when 1st and 2nd Chronicles is separated from Kings and placed at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures just before Matthew, its message is naturally viewed as most hopeful, pointing ahead to the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom promises and the satisfaction in God's presence that the New Testament realizes through Jesus. Salehammer tags this interpretive phenomenon contextuality, noting that meaning is affected by the relative position of a biblical book within a prescribed order of reading, end quote. Or in Emerson's words, and I quote, the reading of a book in a particular canonical order will highlight or expose different aspects of the author's meaning. It will provide a structure in which to interpret the passage. The ordering affects and has theological implications for interpretation. It provides an overarching structure that interpretation is bound to follow because of the nature of reading texts, end quote. Irrespective of what canonical ordering one utilizes, the position in which one reads a given book will likely affect one's biblical theology. Conclusion and summary. The concept of a biblical canon is fundamental to the whole interpretive exercise. When we align with the views of the biblical authors and their contemporaries, we see the need to equally stress canon as rule, that is, authority and norm, and canon as list, including tangible boundaries and shaping. 
This essay has argued that failing to recognize the significance of a canon that is both rule and list can lead us astray when it comes to engaging in biblical theology. Stuart writes, and I quote, An orthodox understanding of canonization holds that the contents of the biblical canon are a matter of divine inspiration, but that the specific order of the contents may have been left in large measure to human agency. End quote. While this common view accounts for the plethora of early orders of books among the lists and manuscripts, it neither accounts for at least some of the explicit features of the canon itself, nor for the nature of reading, all of which necessitate that biblical theology regard canonical arrangement in at least a qualified way. Along with seeking to approach the Hebrew Scriptures and the arrangement that Jesus and his apostles did, which included the order, law, prophets, and writings, the Bible as a whole requires first that we treat the five books of Moses and the four Gospels as foundational for how we interpret the rest of God's Word. Second, we must read in succession the story of salvation recounted in the narrative books, while allowing the messages of the non-narrative commentary books to inform our reading. Third, we must always see the Old Testament as the theological basis of the New Testament, and the New Testament's revelation of Christ as the goal to which the Old Testament points and the lens through which the Old Testament is read. Fourth, we must recognize that the location of a given book in any canonical structure informs our biblical theological interpretation. When, in, when assessing and synthesizing how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ— Interpreters must approach the canon of Scripture as authoritative and normative in light of both its boundaries and shape. In at least a qualified way, the order of the biblical books matters when doing biblical theology. There is indeed hermeneutical significance to the shape of the Christian canon. Thank you. Questions. We've got about 15 minutes for questions. Dr. DeRoshi, thank you uh, for the presentation. In regard to um, your final point that no matter what order you put these books in, um, that in some way is going to affect the reading of text. That in some tacit way, maybe even um, certain juxtapositions juxtapositions are going to influence readings and interpretations. Are there any particular, like maybe one or two, particular instances as you've thought through the Baba Batra ordering compared to what's kind of standard in English, most English Bibles, um, particular texts or particular books where a different ordering has really affected your interpretation of the text? You're able to see things clearer or maybe even the Christological trajectory of a certain text clearer because of the ordering. Certainly, I'll name a few. The placement of Ruth directly after Judges, it's very natural, and we're supposed to build a connection with Judges. Every historical signal that God gives us in his scripture, we're called upon to build theological connections. So the fact that Luke opens Acts, O Theophilus, you know what I wrote in my former book of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, that invites us to read the book of Acts in light of the gospel of Luke and also gives clarity to the fact that what Acts is is what Jesus continues to do and to teach 
post-resurrection through his church. But that stated, Acts also comes directly after John, consistently through the canon lists, suggesting that we are to read the book of Acts in light of John as well, that the synoptics are tied together, and that it was imperative that they include John with the rest of the, with the, rest of the accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And yet, it was also significant that they would have the synoptics up front, that they wouldn't put John as the first book in the New Testament lists. Matthew bears numerous intentional signals all the way back to, to Genesis. I mean, it starts out, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's calling us to see a new creational new beginning here, that God is starting a new humanity that Jesus is doing a work that's directly connected in space and time to David, to Abraham, and that ultimately will reach all the way back to Adam. Um, Matthew also, in the whole language of hunting for the king of the Jews and seeing Christ declaring all authority in heaven and on earth having been given to him, it is a natural overflow of the book of Chronicles. Uh, Chronicles would be so, so Ruth's placement, that's where I was starting. Ruth's placement, um, directly after Judges, is highly, it's a, it's a highly positive book. Judges is a highly negative book. And what's intriguing is that Samuel opens assuming that we're still in that negative context. There is both barrenness, which is a sign of curse in Israel, and the fact that they went annually to Shiloh instead of three times annually to Shiloh suggests that there's also a warped view of worship. And both of those bring us into the book of Samuel and give clarity to, to the beauty of this barren woman who's putting her hope in God and then her prophecy, Hannah's prophecy in 1 Samuel 2.10 is directly linked to Judges, is it 22? Is that how many chapters there are in Judges? 21, 25. So 21 chapters, 25th verse, last verse in the book. Um, it directly links intentionally to that final refrain. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in, in their own eyes. And then Hannah exalts the fact that God will, for the first time, he's going to raise an anointed king, a, a Messiah. He's going to raise him up and... Uh, will be the horn, the strength by which God overcomes his enemies. Um, the flow of the narrative, I think, is broken if we see Ruth directly after Judges. Although we're supposed to read Ruth, Boaz is directly portrayed as a contrast to all the horrible, womanizing brokenness of the period of Judges. He is elevated as this Redeemer from Bethlehem, uniquely... Um, I mean, what do, what do we have? We've got Ruth the Moabitess and Naomi in exile outside of the land, having left the house of bread, Beit Lechem, left the house of bread far from home. And the placement of, and the book is not about Ruth, as, even though that's the name of it. I think it's ultimately about this Redeemer figure who is, he, he tells Ruth, you've come to find refuge under the wings of Yahweh. She says, put your wings over top of me that I might find refuge in you. Boaz is the God figure. He is a redeemer from Bethlehem 
who is the very means for bringing David's ancestors out of exile. The Redeemer from Bethlehem is the means for bringing David's ancestors out of exile. And the focus of the book is on the hope of David. The genealogy, the tenfold genealogy that links all the way back to Genesis comes right at the end and the focus is on the Davidic hope. Yet it was written apparently after David was already there, after David had come. The genealogy takes us all the way to Dave. And it suggests that they're living in a world where Davidic hope is is needed. And so then the question is, okay, this is a book designed to heighten Davidic hope. And in what period, in what part of the Bible does it fit? If Ruth is placed as it is in our Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensius, right after the book of Proverbs, then you have the Eshechayel, the wife of noble character, and in Proverbs 31, and in Proverbs 12, and the only other spot that it occurs is in Ruth chapter 2. And so all of a sudden, Ruth's characterization is elevated as a woman of wisdom, and I think no matter where it's placed, we're supposed to see those connections. We're invited to connect the Asheth Chayel in Ruth with Proverbs. I'm not downplaying that at all. The question is, is does its placement in, after Proverbs actually highlight the purpose of the book? I don't think the book is designed to ultimately elevate Ruth as the woman of wisdom. Rather, it's designed to heighten Davidic hope. And that's why I think the Jews of Jesus' day had placed Ruth before Psalms. Psalms is the biggest of the books in the former writings. It's up front, but all of a sudden, Ruth is there hanging right after Malachi. Israel is experiencing exile. They're separated from kingdom. There's no king in the land. Even though in Malachi, they've already returned to the land, they're still, in Ezra's words, as we will hear, they're still in slavery. Nehemiah says the same thing. So it's into this context of Exile, separation from God, the presence of God is not there. There is no king. David's ancestors are in that state. And so Ruth comes and all of a sudden supplies a a vision that just as David's ancestors were in exile and were, were redeemed by a kinsman redeemer from Bethlehem, let us take comfort in the fact that the promise of, of Micah was that Oh, you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come the Redeemer, the Genesis 49 Redeemer. That this book is set up as a parable so that what Boaz is to Ruth, the ultimate hope, the future ancestor of David, will be for all people. And it sets up reading, then, the book of Psalms messianically. Second example, the book of Ecclesiastes. What do you think about that, Taylor? Uh, he's, he's thinking about doing dissertation in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, you have seven times this language in the ESV, striving after wind. Everything is hevel, a striving after wind. I would translate it because it's the root ra'ah, a shepherding of wind. Everything in this world is like shepherding wind. You, you can't grasp it. You don't know all the purposes of God. He leaves us in ignorance and it makes it extremely frustrating, especially when the days of darkness are so many. Seven times in the book, shepherding of wind, shepherding of wind, shepherding of wind. And all of a sudden, the only other time the root is used is in the 
frame, the final conclusion of the book, where it's one shepherd who is elevated as the source of wisdom. Well, in the book, wisdom has been coming from the king. But one shepherd also seems to be an allusion back to the Shema, where Yahweh is the one. So Yahweh is the source of wisdom. That's clear throughout Job and Proverbs. And yet, Ecclesiastes now, coming after Proverbs, the one shepherd is the source of wisdom. And as in Proverbs, that wisdom is channeled through the king. Well, the fact that Ecclesiastes, which I attribute to Solomon, written before the prophetic material, but now placed after the material, the prophetic material. Latter prophets include Ezekiel, former writings directly after that, including Ecclesiastes. There's only three places in the entire Old Testament where one shepherd shows up. And the other two are in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37, where Yahweh is the great shepherd of his sheep, declares, I will raise up one shepherd, my servant David. This is a messianic motif. And it's the placement of Ecclesiastes after this. Certainly, had Ecclesiastes written by Solomon somehow been fit into the narrative, like it does in chronological Bible reading plans, then we would have been invited to then read it, um, is it prospectively? Yes. Prospectively, not, not knowing it until we've read the Bible numerous times, all of a sudden we would have built that connection. But the fact that we've already made our way through the eschatological text in Ezekiel, we read one shepherd in, Ezekiel, in Ecclesiastes 12 and signals go off. And I believe it's part of God's intention to set us up for John 10, which is the only time in the New Testament, so there's only three times in the Old, only time in the New Testament where one shepherd language is used. Jesus says, I am the one shepherd and I have sheep that are not of this fold. And then what does he do? He goes on to talk about the very message of Ecclesiastes. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can take them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That's the exact dilemma of Ecclesiastes. The fear of what's coming next. Am I secure? Is God close? What do I do? I can't make sense of anything. And the testimony is God through Christ, is making you secure. He is the one shepherd. So three examples, Chronicles, Ruth, and uh, the, the Chronicles is, a, is, a, is another example. I touched on it, and then I jumped back to Ruth. Chronicles answers a different question than Kings does. Kings is written during the exile, and it is answering the question, Where's God gone? Why are we here? And the answer, because of your sin. Chronicles is saying, are we still part of God's purposes? And the answer is, you are. First word in Chronicles, Adam. It takes us all the way back to the beginning and lets the reader know they're still part of God's purposes, reaching all the way back. And then it focuses not on the, the sins of the northern kingdom, not even on the sins of the southern kingdom. It focuses on the hope of the southern kingdom. It never mentions David and Bathsheba. It never mentions Solomon's idolatry. It lets Solomon die honoring God, which I think is right, which is why we have Ecclesiastes and why we have Song of Songs, because he learned. He came back. But 
The book, the point is the book is different. It's, it's calling people to read the, the whole Old Testament story in a hopeful way when you feel so discouraged and are wondering, is there any kingdom hope left? And this book is designed to elevate that kingdom hope by focusing on the Davidic covenant, on the presence of God in Jerusalem and proper worship in order to set a stage for people to persevere for the coming of the Messiah. I personally prefer you riffing than reading the paper, but thank you so much. <laughs> you, you argue that biblical theology requires prioritizing the law. How do you see uh, Genesis 1 through 11 in light of where it is within the law? Great question. So I see Moses as the substantial author of the entire Pentateuch, which means that he's the one who gives us Genesis the entire book of Genesis, post-Sinai. He's shaped it in such a way that Sinai actually influences our reading of Genesis 1 through 11 and beyond. It, what he does in shaping an old covenant and then placing Genesis in the front, it puts Israel, all the world is not here for Israel, it shows that Israel is here for the world, that there is a global uh, reality at stake that God that Israel has been placed to to be an instrument through which God will fix a global problem to bring reconciliation with uh, overcoming the curse and restoring blessing it's going to happen through Israel so Genesis 1 through 11 uh, is significant in the way that it provides backdrop for where Abraham comes from and who he is it, the, the families or the, the clans in Genesis 12, 3, that term is directly out of Genesis 10. The very peoples that spread out from the Tower of Babel, they're called the clans or the families. So when it says, through you, Abraham, all the families of the ground will be blessed, it's directly answering this global curse problem that at the Tower of Babel, the curse spreads. And so why do we have the genealogy in, in chapter 10? Why do we have Ishmael's genealogy? And why do we have Esau's genealogy in the book of Genesis? All of those are segmented genealogies. A gave birth to B, C, and D. Here's B's kids, C's kids, and D's kids. In contrast, Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 are linear. A gave birth to B and other kids. B gave birth to C and other kids. C gave birth to D and other kids. It's a straight line. Genesis 5 and 11 are both focused on the remnant and the preservation of the remnant. So the question becomes, why do we have three groupings of segmented genealogies that are different even in structure, and they're all focused on Israel's neighbors? That is, the rebels, those who are not in the line of promise. It's, it's not just, I believe, to tell Israel who their neighbors are and where their neighbors came from. The purpose is to identify Israel's mission field. That their target are these peoples. The 70 families of the earth are the ones who are under the curse. And Israel has been lifted up to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in the midst of this world. And it's from that people of Israel that the Messiah will come and Abraham will move from being a father of one nation to a father of a multitude of nations. Thanks, Dr. Duroshi. Um, how do we categorize or like evaluate like the reference to canon lists? Like you mentioned a couple different lists and like references. How do we 
categorize which are more like important than others. Does that make sense? Sure. How do we categorize, how do we prioritize different canon lists? Well, I will say this, that in the same way that all of you have learned tools of textual criticism, and the biggest principle of textual criticism is that the most original reading, feel free to correct me if you want to, the most original reading is the one that can explain the rise of all the others. I propose that we need to be thinking about canon in the same way. The most original canon is the one that can explain the rise of all the others. It's very clear that the Christian church after 70 AD, when the Jews, this is how I understand the history, when the Jews gave them back, gave them the Greek Old Testament, 70 AD, the temple falls, and the Jews from that point forward no longer use the Greek Old Testament. They are bound to the Hebrew and Aramaic Targums, but the Hebrew from that point on is a fixed tradition. They don't allow even like uh, Jesus storybook Bibles to be made in Hebrew after 70 AD. They did before 70 AD. That's why in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see such a plethora of both Hebrew, Greek, and Latin traditions of all the different books except Esther. There, it's, it's all there. But in 70 AD, historically, it appears that there's a streamlining. So many, many scholars will say, well, it's in 70 AD that the Old Testament was finally made canonical. I say, no, it's only, it only looks that way because it's in 70 AD that the Jews gave back the Septuagint and then from that point on said, no, in Hebrew, there will only be the standardized text at the temple, nothing else. We won't allow, allow um the Precious Moments Study Bible uh, in Hebrew. But we did before. You could get it at the bookstore. You could go and there was a whole host, the Chicago Bulls Study Bible, Precious Moments Study Bible. And when the people came in, they could distinguish, they could distinguish, oh, that's, that's more the scholarly section. This is more the kids section. Um, the Targums are, are just fascinating in the way that they talk. And they continue to let such expansions happen, but not in Hebrew. So, I understand that the Jews gain their Bible and they disregard Luke 24. They begin to say, okay, we've got this. And what's intriguing is that we have examples of Greco-Roman libraries. We found them. And they're structured exactly like our English Bible Old Testament. They're distinguished by chronology, that is history, and genre. Those are the two defining Elements And so you get the law, the history books, the poetry and wisdom, and the prophecy. But in doing so, we separate ourselves from the New Testament's own witness about how Jesus and the apostles were reading their book. And the only Jewish list that we actually have from Jesus' day is Baba Batra 14b. We have a historian's account of divisions, but he doesn't list the books, but he's speaking as a historian. And he includes 22 books suggesting that he historically is linking Lamentations with Jeremiah and Ruth with Judges. But Baba Batra is the only presented canonical list that we have. And then we don't see anything different from the Jews for another 800 years. So 
it suggests to me that there is, um, we look historically and we look at scripture. We have nothing that testifies the New Testament arrangement that it was guided by the hand of God, but we do see that it was the New Testament arrangement parallels the very structure of the Old Testament itself with Jesus says, that's my Bible. So it's an invitation. I'm not saying that it's inspired, but I'm saying that beyond what our brother Tom Schreiner in a single paragraph in his biblical theological introduction, he dismisses canonical arrangement as informing biblical theology. And my paper today was intended both to give the historical evidence, but then also in a qualified way to say, Dr. Schreiner, we can't push off all arrangement with respect to biblical theology. You don't. You say the New Testament follows the old. That's an arrangement issue. You prioritize the gospels and the law. That's an arrangement issue. And we, we have to read the story in the right order. That's an arrangement issue. And so I'm trying to, in a qualified way, in a way that's still faithful to the text and not going beyond it, to identify that it seems significant. Arrangement is significant, hermeneutically significant for interpreting the Christian scriptures. Thank you. Told you it was going to be kerosene. <laughs> Indeed it was. Thank you so much, Dr. DeRoshi. That was really stimulating and so much to think through uh, on a topic that we all engage at some level, but do not always think through, do not usually, I would say, certainly in most Christians' experience, think that through. Um, your idea about ending the Old Testament on First and Second Chronicles. I, I got to say, there's a pull to that. By the way, Dr. DeRoshi, just very fast, your, the third New Testament category would be Catholic epistles and then Paul's epistles and Hebrews. Is that because of, in your mind, date? Is that because the Catholic epistle authors were apostles or knew Christ specifically? Was that the... Uh, as he scrambles to get, uh, that's kind of unfair of me to ask him a question as he's ready. But yeah. Two responses. Historically, it appears to be the earliest established tradition. But there's at least one other element that has moved me there. And that is that in the same way that the old covenant is established in the law and the new covenant is established in the Gospels, in the same way that the former prophets provide a history of what happened, and it was a negative history. Acts provides a history of what happened, and it's a positive history. The nature of the former prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Twelve, are confronting sin warning of judgment. The former writings, Ruth Psalms, 
Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Lamentations are more portraying what a life with God looked like in the kingdom period. James through Jude are much more akin to the preaching of James and Jude is much more akin to Jeremiah through Malachi. And Paul's writings in the book of Hebrews is much more akin to the former writings. And so that's simply a a contextual thematic link. But um, historically, it's, it's, I mean, there's so little data, but historically, it seems to be the earliest to put the Catholic epistles up front, right after Acts moved to James. Thank you. I had that question as you were talking, and that's, man, I would love to see you and Tom Schreiner and Dempster and whoever else hash this out. Uh, so I hope you'll do that in the future at ETS. Ser- I'm dead serious. I'm not being silly. I, I really hope there'll be further conversation about this um, because there, I can see some changes to the way that would influence the way we read Old and New Testament, um, potentially, potentially for good. So thank you for your, for your very stimulating talk and then um, the Q&A, um, uh, very enjoyable. Thank you as well to communications, uh, the AV team. Is it still called the AV team? I feel like I'm, not, I'm 1989 with that term, but I, I still use it. Audio, the audiovisual team. Um, the audiovisual slash C team, the cloud team, right? Yes, AVC team. See, we're, we're updating everything here, okay? We're sorting everything out at the residency colloquy. Thank you for, to uh, Campus Ops for their work to set the room up and get everything in good order. Thank, thank you to Philippe and Alung for uh, running the mics. We really appreciate that, helping today's program run so smoothly. Of course, uh, we, need to, we need to give a quick hand clap for Jeff Moore, your colleague. Uh, and I want to thank you residency members uh, for a great 2020-21 residency year. It's been a delight having you in the residency, and I'm thankful that we are at this finish line for year three of my leadership, and I'm thankful that you are, are at the finish line now. Uh, and uh, so thank you to all of you for coming. Thank you to our off-campus friends, PhD student friends and guests for coming out today. Uh, we are uh, a relatively small number, but it's been a great day. It's been a great day. The life of the mind, the life of the theological mind grounded in the word of God is alive and well at this school. And I give thanks to God for that. So with that, you are dismissed. Mm-hmm.